Hello everyone, my name is Bala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send your questions to Ray and I and our distinguished guests and we'll do our best to answer you live. Uh, we're approaching about 200 guests on Disrupt TV, so check out our previous episodes, uh, our podcasts on SoundCloud and iTunes. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the founder and CEO of Constellation Research. He's a best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, Forbes, and ZDNet, and in my humble opinion, one of the best futurists to follow on Twitter, at R-W-A-N-G-0. Welcome, Ray, to Disrupting Me. Hey, thanks a lot, Vala. I'm here with my co-host, Vala Ashar, the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce, but more importantly, one of the top CMO, CIO followers, on, and more importantly, a big contributor to Huffington Post, and also an author himself, which he always forgets to tell all of us. So thanks a lot. Hey, great to be on the show. It is a Friday. Who do we have here? We've got some awesome guests this week. We do. We have three amazing guests, and our first guest is Bryn Kennedy, and she's the CEO and founder of Move Guides. Move Guides helps companies move their employees around the world, including interns, permanent locations, expatriates, and project-based moves. Uh, Bryn is the recipient of numerous high-profile awards, including Entrepreneur of the Year and Woman in IT Awards, Entrepreneur of the Year and Woman of the Futures Award, the Distinguished Alumni Entrepreneur Award from London Business School, and Management Today's 35 Under 35 list. Named by Workforce Magazine as the 2017 Game Changer, she's also been lauded for her leadership in global mobility by the Workforce ERC in the form of expatriates management. Prior to Move Guides, Bryn worked at Lehman Brothers and Standard Chartered. You can follow Bryn on Twitter at B-R-Y-N-N-E-S-P-E-A-K, Bryn Speak. Welcome, Bryn, to Disrupt TV. Thanks, Fala. Hey, thanks a lot for being on the show. Um, you are doing some incredible work. Uh, one of the things that you talk about is really this global mobility that's happening. And when you talk about global mobility, you're not talking about this. You're talking about people getting to their jobs, people being moved around, special teams, people being put into different types of situations about where they work, when they work, and how they work. So talk about that evolution of we're going to a more nomadic workforce. What does that mean? Yeah, thanks, Ray. Well, we are now in what we call the global mobility era. As a society, we often think of mobility and migration as permanent moves or relocations that are driven by personal economics. But today's reality is that people move around the world for an ever more complex set of reasons, for family needs, for education, for work opportunities, for quality of life. And these moves have an ever-growing mix of frequency, of distance, and duration. At a macro level, there's about 232 million people living around the world today. And this number is multiples higher when you include uh, these mobile and nomadic workforce folks that aren't often included in the UN figures. Um, but even if you look at what the Institute of Migration says, about one in seven people on earth is a migrant today. This is also driven by the millennials. So about 83% of millennials say that they want to work abroad at some point in their career. And an even greater number of them say that they want to work across different offices. So I like to say you could say that we're going back to our homo sapiens roots of exploring the world and uh, finding new opportunities, uh, both at the macro level and at the company level. So a very similar uh, global mobility era has overtaken companies and companies are now filled with this mobile and nomadic workforce. So at Move Guides, we see about 50% of a company's workforce today may be what we call mobile. So that's away from the home office as a part of travel, of projects, of recruiting, of commuting, of relocations, or of expatriate assignments. And there's 50% growth predicted in mobile employees by 2020 across surveys that we've done and others have done with hundreds of multinational firms. Does this include the contingent workers and the, you know, and the project-based workforces that you're talking about as well? Um, when we look at it, we just look at people who are employed within the company. If you add the contingent workforce, that number obviously is certainly much, okay. much higher. So. We look at it as, as things like you know, your engineers who are uh, working on oil rigs around the world, your bankers and consultants who are seeing clients for a few weeks at a time, your data scientists who are being recruited from another state or from university or cross-border from another company your managers conducting market research and expanding into new states, new regions, new countries. 
That's amazing. I, I saw a study where uh, about 20, 30 years ago, there were only three megacities in the world defined by a population of 10 million or more. Currently, there's about 23, I think maybe 24 megacities in World Economic Forum. Just forecasted by 2050, there'll be 50 cities with 10 million or more population. So 50 megacities. As all of this convergence to highly populated, highly dense environments, what are, what are some of the challenges that you know, movers will face? Uh, and certainly appears to be a very exciting space to be a part of. So I think the interesting thing about this space is that a lot of the structural aspects of it are lagging to what the, where the workforce actually is and what companies need. So what I mean by that is principally immigration regulation, tax regulation, and housing. So immigration is really still set up for the idea that it's a rarity if you're moving somewhere different. It's very cumbersome. It's not necessarily thought of as this mobile nomadic workforce. And we need governments to really come together and innovate in their immigration policy to power this further. The other piece is the tax regulation. All of the tax codes are really set up for you to be a nine to five employee, frankly, even in one state. Well, even within the U.S., it's cumbersome if you're working across different states let alone if you're hopping between different countries and all of your benefits from a government perspective, your pension, your Medicare, things like that, those are all tied to you living in one place. So all of that structural stuff is far behind where the world is today. The other one is housing, as you mentioned with the, the mega cities. So there's a huge uh, lack of availability of quality space for people to stay, whether they're on a business trip or whether they're moving yeah. somewhere for a short or long period of time. Thankfully, we see have seen the growth of things like Airbnb, which are filling some of those gaps. But then again, sometimes you see companies lagging behind that. We still see a surprising number of companies at Move Guides in the Fortune 2000 that are uncomfortable with non-traditional housing options for their employees. And that creates problems from the experience perspective for that employee. Sure. No, that makes a lot of sense, especially when we see... Um, you know, the shift in terms of work environments too, and, and those housing arrangements, uh, especially in cities like San Francisco, trying to get a hotel room in the middle of conference season, it's gotta be hell. So some large conferences, uh, some of us throw uh, down there. But um, yeah, so I mean. <laughs> so, but, uh, yeah. but then but then this, is, this all gets to the notion of the employee experience, right? I mean, if you're moving all the time, you're spending half your time, like trying to get comfortable, understand what you're doing. Um, this whole notion of employee experience is, is now something that becomes very critical critical uh, as, as people think about that overall experience. It's, it's work-life balance is not just that. It's, it's across every stage of, you know, of, of recruiting or finding talent across the board. So why is employee experience at the hub? What's going on? It is. I mean, it's a, as you said, it's a horizontal thing across recruiting, across a business trip, across a project, or across a relocation or expatriate assignment. So I think it's two things, right? One is retention and one is engagement. So statistically, people tend to leave organizations after they've had a series of mobility experiences. Yeah, after they go on an expatriate assignment, as an example, or after they go somewhere to a new office for a long duration, they tend to leave that organization. And the organization invests significantly in their mobile and nomadic workforce. Uh, companies that we work with can spend upwards of $100 million a year moving their mobile and nomadic workforce. And in, when you go to the top end of the curve to the expatriates, it's typically three times someone's salary to move them somewhere. So, you know, as an organization, you need to get a high ROI out of that person. They need to achieve their business objectives. And ideally, you want that to accelerate their career and their contribution to your company. But given that the experiences are sometimes rather cumbersome and companies sometimes aren't very good at finding a great role for the next mobile experience or the next tour of duty, often people leave and they seek that elsewhere. So um, it's both a logistic experience, offering a, a, an easy way to settle in, be productive, stay engaged with your organization, and also an experience post-mobile uh, experience so that you go on to something equally engaging, equally exciting, and equally rewarding going forward. Wow, but those stats are amazing as far as expense, uh, for recruiting and, and, and moving talent. Uh, you, you touched uh, a little bit of, in, in terms of uh, impact of you know, immigration uh, on recruiting talent and, 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 and the complexity of moves. What are some of the impacts of immigration changes, changes Brexit, 
uh, recent uh, discussions around DACA in the U.S. and 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 other uh, related uh, changes in in potential um, guidelines and rules in terms of impact on moving talent. That is a great question, Vala. We do certainly live in interesting times in the last few years. Um, there's definitely a shifting political landscape. I think we we distill down what we've seen over the last few years in in three ways. So one is it's actually accelerated the mobile and nomadic workforce. Uh, people are now voting with their feet about where they want to live. Um, pe some people are forced to move for various nationality reasons or tax reasons. And we see companies hedging their locations and their compliance. So companies are opening up more offices throughout the European Union, as an example. They're making sure that they have contingency plans to deploy people if immigration regulations change. And that, that's driving a lot of acceleration in this mobile and nomadic workforce that is moving for different periods of time. The other thing that it's done is it's accelerated what we call the new HR that is global mobility and is based on the assumption of a mobile and nomadic workforce. So it requires close links between the C-suite and the HR teams to navigate these changing tides. It requires careful management of compliance in a growing complex and dynamic environment. And it requires more data uh, to be readily available so that businesses can make decisions, CFOs can make decisions, CHROs can make decisions about where their people are and make sure that they're there uh, safely and in line with the regulations. Obviously, all of this dynamic change also puts a greater emphasis on the employee experience if you're asking people to go places for particular periods of time or they're raising their hand and saying, I don't want to live here anymore, I need to go somewhere else and I need you to help me get there to the employer. Employers don't want to lose those people and they want to keep them engaged. So I would say the really interesting thing is, that we've seen is historically global mobility has been um, a pretty siloed function, fairly mid-level within the organization. And over the last five years, it has accelerated to really be the basis of new HR and on the minds of, of many, many, many C-suite executives because it's core to business strategy and to operating within this political environment. And that's here to stay, by the way. Sure. No, and what's interesting about this is like when we look at the shift in uh, global relocation, you guys actually talk about this employee relocation life cycle. Um, talk about some of it. Like, uh, what are the pieces? What are the parts? Um, you know, there are things that traditionally people have done so fragmented uh, that you guys are looking at it from a, a holistic point of view. Yeah, so I think there's two levels of how we look at it. So first is we look at it holistically about the idea of a mobile experience, not just a relocation. So these are these different durations, different distances, and different complexity of moves. And for each of those different experiences, there is its own life cycle. So you can imagine how complex our product is looking at the different archetypes and the different life cycles tied to all those experiences. Um, but maybe just focusing on a traditional move for the moment, because I think that's someone everyone's familiar with. Um, there's an aspect of planning. Where am I going? What is my life going to be like when I get there? And how am I getting my logistics sorted to get there? Um, yeah. What we do at Move Guides is we try to provide peace of mind and excitement to people. So peace of mind is a reliable set of partners that integrate with our platform around the world for easy transacting. Excitement is 500 different layers or dimensions of data that we integrate about 250 cities around the world to show you what the ski situation is in the country you're going to or how bike friendly it is or how many parks there are, what the housing wow. situation is so that you and your family can really get a sense of what life is there in an algorithmically driven way. So whether I'm an intern or an expat, these things are all the same factors that come into play. Well, there might be a different filter because you might care about where the nightclubs are if you're an intern rather than, you know. <laughs> than the expat with a family and a dog and two. Got a newborn. But um, yes, the idea is that the sets of data and the experiences for the employee can be tailored to different demographics and different types of mobility. So once I planned, then I actually physically move. That's a logistics nightmare in the best of circumstances for families. Um, and even at small distances, I'm sure everyone on this call has moved in, in some way. I myself recently moved from London to San Francisco. And um, you know, even in the best of times, it's stressful and a logistics challenge. So what we do is, again, we try to provide peace of mind through that process and excitement through that process. So we bring together the data on the provision of all of the different services that you get, the dependencies between those and the key milestones. 
so that in much the same way as you're looking at TripIt, something like that, you can see the status of all of your services and know that it's on track and be dealing with the excitement side of things. Then as an individual, I arrive somewhere. Then I have my benefits being administered. I have some expenses to be reimbursed and I settle into my new home. So here it's all about us integrating with payroll uh, so that we can give instructions of any adjustments that you might have due to cost of living, any other benefits that need to be administered and keeping you engaged with your mobile experience and the city that you're living in. Then you return and we take you through that in the similar fashion through the hub. The HR person can see all of that at the employee level or at the macro level across their mobile population. Wow, that's pretty comprehensive. And so, and, and you're also doing policy enforcement at the same time as well. So that becomes the customized portion for each company. And you also have the capability to actually, you know, do policy and, and provide employee experience, which is like usually counterculture, right? You know, people are like, oh, it's a policy, but you can do it in a fun way and actually put folks in play. Yeah, so, policies yeah. are sometimes kind of like cable TV bills or pricing packages. You know, as, a, as an employee, sometimes you sort of turn off when you get a PDF document of 70 pages with all of your policy eligibility when you're going somewhere for three months. So what we, what we do is we digitize that with our customers and that becomes the lens under which everything that's provided to the employee happens. The employee can see it visually, it's engaging, HR can see everything's happening within the policy. So our system is really based on the idea of a core set of data, a core set of algorithms, a core set of functionality and integrations, and then with lenses at the policy level or at the individual level so that you have the best experience possible for what you're doing at that point. That's very cool. You have one of your customers uh, that's a finalist for the Supernova Awards at the yes. Constellation Connect Enterprise, Booking.com. I think they leverage your talent mobility cloud. Can you talk a little bit about the experience and what they were able to achieve in terms of outcomes, business outcomes? Yeah, for sure. So for booking, a lot of what they were focused on was this employee experience piece. So um, we have an HR and an employee UI. And so be, all of our customers adopt both of those, but certain customers will be more focused on the employee experience versus the compliance and management piece on the HR side. For booking, they were really focused on the employee experience. The reason for that is they're growing really quickly, recruiting large numbers of engineers into Amsterdam in particular, um, and growing pretty quickly around the world. And they saw, as many of our customers do, and as you mentioned earlier, Ray, the ability to offer an engaging horizontal employee experience across recruitment and across onboarding as a key differentiator for talent attraction and talent retention. And when you're growing really quickly and fighting talent wars for highly skilled people um, in a market where historically a lot of those people don't necessarily live, then that becomes really very, very important. So that's one piece. And the second piece was a lot of their uh, transition and onboarding process had historically been done in a pretty paper-driven way. So there was a lot of paper flying back and forth to the different vendors when someone is moving. There was some paper internally around, um, around arriving at the office and getting set up. So we were able to digitize all of that. We have a, an interactive checklist, which helps the employee understand exactly what they need to do when within the relocation process, as well as within the uh, arrival at the company, first few days of work. And so that really took out a great amount of administration, both on the employee side, as well as on the, um, on the team side. Wow, we are here with Bryn Kennedy, CEO and founder of Move Guides, award-winning LBS uh, graduate, uh, Workforce Magazines. Uh, you're actually one of the uh, futures, uh, future winners, Workforce Leaders of the World Award, uh, which they gave you. Uh, workforce Game Changer, and more importantly, you can follow her for interesting information uh, and advice in terms of the move mobility movement at Brynspeak, B-R-Y-N-N-E-S-P-E-A-K, and then, of course, you can follow um, the contributions that they're doing as Mobility for All, if I was that's correct, the hashtag. So, yep. So, hey, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Brynspeak. Thank, thank you, Vala. Awesome. Yeah, wow. you know, it's it's definitely working at a thirty-one thousand employee company that's spread all around the world. I can certainly appreciate any organization that has a platform that can help, you know, the the optimize the the, the moving experience. So uh, it's it's I think uh, uh, companies that have good culture and care about their employees 
will invest in capabilities uh, like uh, you know mobility guidelines. So. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, uh, yeah, and and that's good. Yeah, and and they've also launched this mobility for all thing, which is a they put they one percent of their revenue, kind of the one 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 stuff that you guys do over there. Um, but it's really about contributing one percent of revenue resources for global mobility for those that are uh, in in distress uh, for a lot of those fleeing war and poverty. So it's a very interesting initiative on the back end. So, but hey, who do we have next? We've got someone that's uh, uh, I'd say so, uh, so a super we accomplished thought leader here. That's right. Well, our first guest talked about you know leveraging technology to improve the employee experience, which ultimately is at the core of having a good, great, engaged culture. And we have an expert to talk to us about building a great company culture. David Sturt is an executive vice president at OC Tanner, a $500 million global recognition and culture company. Uh, David's also a New York Times bestselling author of great work, How to Make a Difference People love and a new re released companion book, Appreciate. Uh, appreciation is at the heart of, of building a great company. David's work and interviews have been published in the Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, Inc., and many, many other publications. He's also a co-author of a leadership column for Forbes.com. I highly recommend that you read it. Uh, David had a fantastic TED Talk. Talk about surgeons and race car drivers building the ultimate experience. <laughs> And hopefully we'll learn a little about that. It's just an amazing talk. Uh, helps you think about expanding that inner circle of influence to learn from, uh, from others. Uh, he's, he's spoken to thousands uh, of business leaders at conferences, Fortune 100 companies around the world. He's another must follow on Twitter. Just daily inspiration kind of lifts you up. Uh, at, uh, at David underscore S-T-U-R-T. Welcome, David, to Disrupt TV. Thank you. It is great to be with you. I had to work really hard to shorten your bio. You've done a lot. <laughs> <laughs> He's definitely an under, underachiever. Well, another one yeah, of our underachiever well. guests here at Disrupt TV. So. David doesn't sleep. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, hey, welcome to the show. Um, you just finished this awesome uh, a bunch of research that's going on, but let's talk about the global research on culture. One of your many projects, um, looking through the lens of the employee experience. As you can tell, this is our experience show. Uh, we've got some top experience. Uh, folks on this show this week. Um, so what's this going on? What, what's happening on this research and culture? What's changed really uh, in terms of where your findings are going? Well, you know, culture is really rising in prominence. More and more people are thinking about culture. Engagement has been obviously a hot topic for a long time. And uh, I think the big question has been engaged in what? Engaged to what end, right? What, what, is, what does the engagement lead to? And uh, I think at the core of that, you have to ask, what are the cultural dynamics that affect people's decisions to decide to bring their best work and fully engage in the purpose of the organization and really move things forward? So it's coming into play more and more. Culture has been studied more broadly for years. Back in the 1800s, cultural anthropologists started studying culture uh, through the lens of different ethnicities and tribes and, and races and regions around the world. But when it comes to companies, we, we all like to think we're so independent, and especially in a Western environment where independence is sort of highly regarded. And I think people, people overestimate how independent they truly are. Culture has a way bigger influence on all of us in our work, in our families, in our lives than anybody really has understood in the past. Sure, sure, I totally agree with that. I feel like one of the main reasons I joined my company was my understanding of their culture, more so than their history of innovation and their growth trajectory. As a first-gen immigrant, I just felt that the culture was inclusive and transparent with a high degree of accountability and all of that spoke to me. Um, but but let, let, let's talk a little bit about your role. Uh, at, can you talk to us a little bit about what you do at OC Tanner, we also know you're a best-selling author and a thought leader, but specifically, how are you, what was your role in a company that's trying to help other companies build strong, uh, engaged cultures? Great question. Um, I spend most of my time in the OC Tanner Institute, and that is a research and publishing arm of the company where we do a lot of deep dives into understanding workplace culture and what effect and what are the different dynamics and the aspects that uh, really end up making a huge difference. Uh, the OC Tanner company 
provides a number of solutions that help organizations really shape and address their culture. I think for a long time, people thought, well, culture is sort of like a personality. Everyone has one and, uh, and you kind of work your way around it. But I, I see CHROs now being much more purposeful, much more intentional about helping shape that culture. And so we're providing some research to help them create a framework for thinking about their culture and then shaping it in a deliberate way to attract people like you who made a, a hiring decision based on the culture of the organization. And we're seeing that more and more. And in fact, not only is it a huge impetus for what people uh, evaluate when it comes to deciding where to work, it also has a massive influence over your choice to stay when the recruiter calls sure. and your choice to engage in the work that you're, uh, that you're doing. And when you say deep dive, I mean, you're talking deep dive. We looked at 10,000, at random, 10,000 super award-winning innovators to try to find patterns and, and, and almost like a heat map uh, of, of, you know, what are some of the levers that enable organizations to be uh, super innovators and, 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 and growth accelerators. So it's, 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 it's incredible. I'm curious to... Will you, are you using artificial intelligence or advanced analytics? How do you, how do you look at such large data set to extract uh, incredible unique points of view? That's a great question. Uh, and we've got some really good researchers in our institute team. And we also partner with outside organizations to tap in to their thinking around this. And so we've used really a combination of a number of different perspectives. Uh, we do have a really great data set that we can mine. And so we do use uh, some analytics to, uh, to see what can we learn from that. We've, we've looked at lots of different options there. We've also gone through survey research, as well as one-on-one -on -one interviews, as well as focus groups, just taking as, as many dimensional view as we can at this. Um, but it's fascinating data. I mean, you, it's, it's easy to just get deep down into it and uh, it kind of doesn't let you go. You, you, you just keep having more questions. And then the insights that, that come out of that become really interesting, especially the ones that are actionable, the ones that you can actually uh, leverage to go accomplish things that, uh, that, and, and take your, your culture in a certain direction. You have an awesome job. <laughs> I do. I love it. Can you tell? I mean, it's, uh, it's stuff I love to, to drill into. You know, hey, at your conference, we were talking about, you know, how do you measure a culture? You know, what, what's important to, in that measurement of the culture and, and, and how to get there? Um, and you came up with some really um, great findings from the research. Want to share a little bit about those and, and what, what's important there? Sure. You know, culture often for most people is pretty amorphous. You know, it's sort of this big multidimensional thing. And how do you make sense of it? And, and, and how do you measure it? And so we spent quite a lot of time analyzing other studies that had been done to look for different core variables, sort of a meta-analysis on all of the existing academic and consulting research out there. And then from that, we honed down to a few key areas that we felt like uh, met the criteria that we were most interested in, which is when you look at, uh, when you look at culture, we think that one of the most important lenses that often HR leaders fail to look through is, is through the lens of the, of the employee. The, what's the employee's experience when it comes to your culture? And so we isolated and identified six different areas that became really the framework for analyzing and measuring culture. And I'll just kind of touch on each one of those six, and then we can explore them or talk more about them. But, but the first was purpose. And what we mean by purpose is, is more than just a mission statement, right? Everybody has a mission statement. So many of them are just so antiseptic. They, they are so non-inspiring. They're, they're almost like a bunch of people got together and said, you know, what's the almost like encyclopedic version of what business are we in? And, and it's just not very interesting to most employees. Like we, you know, we're in the transportation industry trying to drive shareholder value to each one of our stakeholders, like blah, 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 blah. <laughs> employees don't really connect with that. They want to no. know what difference is our organization making in the world? What is the soul of the organization? What's the DNA? What is something I can bring my energy behind and rally against? And so we're seeing organizations be much more mindful of how they're talking about that purpose and making it more emotive and less sort of synthetic. 
So purpose is a big attractor. We, we call it a talent magnet. It, it draws people to the cause of the company. So that's one set of variables and one of those elements in the framework of culture. The second one is opportunity. And when we say opportunity, it's not just the traditional, what's my advancement track? Because that's changing for a lot of organizations. As, as there's so much more disruption to, to so many organizations, they're having to be thoughtful about how do I help an employee grow? How do I help yeah. them have experiences? How do I put them on cross-functional teams where they get opportunities to interact with other people? How do I help them grow in their ability to create new value? And that's not always just a career ladder. I, I think so many more people are interested in meaningful work work where they get to grow and develop their skills and talents. So what happened to just the paycheck? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some organizations are still trying to rely on that. And it's just not that motivational anymore. Once people make what they need to make, they want to have meaning and opportunity to grow and develop. <laughs> and so, so anyway, I, you know, you, you do wonder that. And often uh, managers are going, hey, come on, you get paid every two weeks. Shut up and work. Like, what, what the heck? You know? wait, and it's wait, like, wait, wait. But does it mean I'm going to hire robots instead because they're not going to complain? Well, will we be worried about robot experiences? And, you know, you know are, are robots be. happy? <laughs> so, that's right. Are they, are they cared for? Do they, do they see opportunity? Right? So, uh, so that, that's the second one. The third one is around success. People need to feel like they are part of making a difference where they are actually having an effect, that they have an influence that's felt through results, through outcomes, through feeling like I'm part of a winning team and that there's progress and that I'm part of innovation and that there's movement. It's not static, it's not just rote, it's not just the same thing day after day, but I have wins, I have successes, and that is really how people are redefining success. It's not a, a state that you arrive at, it's something that it needs to, you need to feel part of every day, every week, every month. The, the fourth one's around appreciation. And do I feel valued? If I'm gonna dig in, if I'm gonna fully engage, if I'm gonna bring wins and successes to the organization and my team that I work with, is that valued? Is that cared about? Is it noticed? The number one people leave an, reason people leave an organization is they don't feel valued. They don't feel like their work okay. is appreciated. And so uh, that's obviously a core dimension. And I think that's becoming even more important in, in today's environment than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, et cetera. And then the, 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 the next one is around well-being. People need to know, does the organization care about me as an individual, as a whole being, or am I just viewed as a unit of labor to be extracted, mined out, and then cast aside? And people can tell that. Uh, pretty quickly when they come into an organization, they want to know, does the organization care about me as a whole person? The flexibility, the opportunities that, that surround me, make me feel like you care about me as a person. And the last one, the sixth uh, dimension of culture is really around leadership. And we're not talking just senior leadership and your direct uh, manager, but also the sense of shared leadership. We're doing a bunch of research right now for the next book that we're working on around shared leadership. How is that shared by an organization? It's not just this top-down thing. The old constructs of leadership are starting to give way to, I think, a lot more healthy, more vibrant, more inclusive uh, a leadership, which invites everybody on the team to participate in how to lead the, the direction of the team. So those are the six dimensions that we found bubble up out of the data. And those are the ones we feel like are most important to pay attention to as an organization. David, your book uh, titled Appreciation, does that, is that a hint at, at, in terms of where you prioritize these six pillars, cultural pillars, or you know, are there a different set of priorities? How would you rank, stack rank these, 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 these six uh, uh, magnets that, 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 that you talked about? You know, it's interesting. There's there's an awful lot of interplay between them. They all have an effect and a big influence on the on shaping the overall culture, but uh, some have disproportionately high influences because when you're looking to separate out the really great cultures from the ones that are sort of marginal or even the ones that are lousy, where where they become almost toxic to the individual and their accomplishment, we see that those characteristics that define the really great cultures people feel like 
they're drawn in. There's there's something that's almost intangible where they feel like their their best work is almost pulled out of them. It's so valued in the organization. The organizations really express appreciation for accomplishment, for innovation, for results. And they know from whence that comes, it comes from people. And so companies that have put a focus on really being clear about the appreciation they have for those people who are delivering the results, it sends a signal throughout the whole organization, this matters. And that then propels that success. It starts to create opportunities for people. It, it gives people a sense of well-being. So appreciation has this really disproportionately powerful influence and that when it's missing, wow, you can sense it, feel it, and you see it in the numbers, you see it in the results. And so that's what we're seeing more leading edge companies is paying attention to that, helping their managers understand that, helping create opportunities for peers to be able to express appreciation, uh, to really put that focus on what's valued in the organization. And guess what? What gets valued gets done and repeated, and that happens over and over again. And that's what we see is this upward spiral of companies that just pull away from their competitors because they're really focused on shaping that culture to where what matters is the stuff that's most important. And it, then it gets not so political and you get, don't get all these same blockades in the way of people's ability to do extraordinary things. That's what people want to do, right? Yeah, absolutely. Terrific advice. Terrific. So now when we're at the conference, we're, we're, I think we actually talked about some of the uh, shifts like where HR is almost like marketing in terms of recruiting and talent and tying back to brand. Um, and, and I think some of the things that you're asking organizations to do is, is to rethink who they really are and start by understanding what their brand and what that culture is um, so that they can actually start you know, implementing policies against that or helping people rethink how, how they should go about in terms of you know, attracting talent or employee, improving employee engagement. Um, are there certain magnets that work better than others that are more relevant when you're in this piece where you're trying to target retention versus trying to think about learning and development and you know, versus on the recruiting side? Great point. One of the interesting things that came out of this data, and I get asked this question a lot as I meet with CHROs around the world is, hey, you know, we're trying to balance several different initiatives. One that's that that really wasn't an issue a few years ago is retention, and you raised that issue. It's become really, really key. Uh, you know, pre-recession it was about attraction, yes. and then during recession, people were just happy to have a job and 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 be able to contribute because they had friends that were laid off or whatever else. Now there's all kinds of opportunities, and those opportunities are pulling every day at, at organizations. So I'm hearing retention becoming a really, really powerful uh, focus. And when you examine these six different magnets, as you described in our research, it was really fascinating to kind of step back from it and say, which of these magnets contribute the most to yep. retention? And, 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 and if you had to focus on a few of them, because you can't do all of them at once, no. where would you go after them? And it was very interesting seeing Leadership is this thread that runs through every one of them. It runs through attraction, it runs through engagement, it runs through retention. But the two dominant areas were really around a sense of well-being and a sense of, 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 of appreciation. Both of those together created more of an influence on the person's choice to stay than any of the other ones by comparison. Obviously, each of these are important, but well-being and appreciation really seem to have an, an, an extra level of influence on somebody's desire to stay when the recruiter calls. And I think it goes to reason, right? If you think, man, people love what I'm doing here. I feel like I've got a lot to offer. I, I, my contributions are really valued here. The chemistry is right. I love what I'm doing. I'm in a position where I can really contribute. Will that really be the same at the next place that may look a little greener in some uh, categories? Will I have a leader that cares about me the way my leader does, brings me yep. the support, et cetera? And then that sense of well-being. They're not trying to burn me out. I can't actually have a life here. And 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 so those are those are dimensions that seem to have a higher effect on people's choice to stay compared to some of the other areas. 
Oh, this is great. We're here with David Sturt, Executive Vice President, OC Tanner Company, and best-selling New York Times author, uh, TED speaker, and many more. So uh, there's more we get to learn from you. Uh, this has been wonderful. Thank you for being on the show. We can follow him. You can follow David at David underscore S-T-U-R-T. So thanks again. Thank you. Pleasure being with you guys. Thank you, David. We could have talked to you for a whole hour. You were great. Thank you. Yeah, terrific. Wow, that was, you know, I wonder, Ray, if companies invest enough in terms of training their managers and their leaders to understand all these attributes of cultivating and building and creating a good culture. Uh, because ultimately, culture is your brand. I mean, in, in this knowledge-sharing, hyper-connected economy, your culture is your brand. So it's the most important space where you need to invest your time and energy. And you know, I know my company invests a, a boatload of energy appreciating and building and, and recognizing and celebrating good culture. Uh, you know, people should read David's book and really understand it's probably the number one uh, lever of building a successful growing business. So It is. And, and we've been talking about empowerment of the employee and moves and, and experiences. We're talking about empowerment um, in, in many ways. Um, we're not going to talk about empowerment of customers. Who do we have next? <laughs> So, so this is uh, what we traditionally call our cleanup hitter spot, where we try to invite a Hall of Famer. He's already in the CRM Hall of Fame. He's going to be in the Disrupt TV Hall of Fame. But uh, we have with us Paul Greenberg, founder and uh, managing principal of the 56 Group, an advisory firm focused on state-of-the-art uh, market trends in CRM, both from a practitioner to future, everything uh, involving building uh, an incredible uh, customer experience using CRM technologies. Paul's book, CRM at the Speed of Lights, in the fourth edition, I believe it's been translated to more than nine languages. It's being taught in more than 70 universities. Every time I go to get updates regarding Paul's book, the numbers keep going, so I'm probably giving you outdated numbers. Let's just say the most successful book written about CRM. Now, you know, because he has written eight or nine books, He's working on his new book, The Commonwealth of Self-Interest, Customer Engagement, Business Benefits. I believe it's due out sometime in 2018. We're going to learn more about it. The final uh, uh, manuscript was sent uh, uh, to Paul's editors uh, at Harvard. So it, I'm very excited. It's going to be coming out very soon. Currently, uh, Paul, who's often referred to affectionately, this has nothing to do with age, as a godfather of CRM, <laughs> he sits on advisory boards at the SEAT Sports and Same and Art Technology Consortium as one of the only non-sports professional of the sports business in this consortium. He was the EVP at CRM Association, chairman of the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Business Management, CRM Center uh, of Excellence, board of advisors. He's also a number of boards, number of universities. He is a thought leader. He mentors thought leaders in the CRM space. My very first blog ever was Paul inviting me to write a bit about our CRM implementation back in 2013. That was my first blog. I just penned my 89th blog of this year. So I became a blogger because of Paul Greenberg's generosity. So he is my mentor beyond words that I can describe. Uh, he's a must-follow on Twitter at P-A-U-L-G-R-E-N-B-E, -E, Paul Green B. Welcome, Paul, to Disrupt TV. <laughs> I have nothing to say. Well, uh, with the two minutes remaining left, let's ask you one question. <laughs> if I'm in the Hall of Fame, you can't get into the Hall of Fame until you retired for five years. So I assume that was like a big hint, right, to oh. tell me. Although, the, although in, two, in, two, in 2010, CRM Magazine put you in the CRM Hall of Fame, the first non-vendor thought leader to be in the Hall of Fame. So you yeah, break those rules. They're telling me retire now, right? <laughs> get out of this now. And that's why I get, instead of being called the godfather a lot of times, this does have to do with age, I get the grandfather of CRM. <laughs> that's happened more and more, believe me. And my only answer to that one is thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> So, but hey, so, you know, we, we kind of alluded to the book you are writing and it's been going on for a, quite some time. And uh, what is this thing? What is this commonwealth of self-interest about? Tell us more about uh, it. Here's the thing. I mean, I've been talking about the idea of a commonwealth of self-interest for 10, 12 years. And I thought it just really made a good book title. But um, here's what it really is. There's 
you got to start from the standpoint of the entirety of humanity, literally. Seven and a half billion people on this planet. Okay, and there's one thing that every single one of them has in common, and only one. Everyone wants to be happy. Every single one. And on the journey to happiness, they want to be happy. They don't want to be miserable on the way to happiness unless they're deeply into like S&M or something, right? So what happens is, in order to be happy in your life, you're self-interested. You have an interest in figuring out what that's going to be, right? And you follow a path. And the more control you have over the path in life you choose, the happier you are about it. That translates to business a great deal because what does it say? It says, okay, in my role, I'm a human being, and in my role as a customer, uh, I'm going to buy stuff from you and you want me to. Now, from your standpoint, business, you're interested in profitability, you're interested in revenue, year-over-year -year increases, you're interested in, if you're an enlightened company, stakeholder value, if you're not so enlightened, shareholder value. That's what you're interested in. I'm a customer, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in feeling valued. And what that means is that you show me that I'm important enough to you for you to know something about me and for you to attend to my self-interest. All right, and all of that's great. Now let's assume your, I don't know, Citigroup. Citigroup has 200 million customers all thinking the exact same thing. Oh, you check no. me personally. And they're saying, I know you have another 199,999,999 customers. I don't care. I don't care. And you know what else they're saying? I know as a business, you were born constrained. You were constrained by regulation. You were constrained by the amount of uh, capital you had available to you, you're constrained by your time, you're constrained by your staff, you're constrained by all these different things from birth. And you know what? As a customer, I don't care, right? So <laughs> here's the thing. The business says, okay, well, we do want to keep you. And, you know, uh, had a discussion recently on the employee retention side. Well, customer retention is pretty important also. And all the data is there, which I'm not going to go over since it's been there for like 35 years of why it's better to try to retain and acquire, although it's better to actually do both. Um, so the business says, all right, well, how am I going to provide the customer with something that says, I know enough about you to show that you're valued by me and I will give you something that says so and not go broke in the bargain. <laughs> so you look at things, if you go back in history, that was hard to do actually. The data you had on the customer, pretty much personal data was, they bought this. They didn't buy this. That was about it. Now, you know, and that was, then you had demographic data, which kind of goes this way. And it was like, okay, I'm Paul Greenberg. I'm this Jewish New Yorker who roots for the Yankees. <laughs> but if you go to Manhattan's phone book, there's 250 Paul Greenbergs who are Jewish New Yorkers who root for the Yankees. And five who root for the Mets, right? So <laughs> that's it, right? So I don't care about the other 199 of those people, right? <laughs> so the company has to say, well, okay, well, you know, unfortunately, since we're a Manhattan-based company, we have 130 of those in our database here. So which is which? So then we realize now, though, because of all the data, all that unstructured data out there, we have all this information going this way, that I, I wear these kind of clothes, I buy this kind of stuff, I am going to buy a new iPhone, unlike you, right? Um, <laughs> and I will buy an iPhone X, not because I'm an Apple fanatic, though, but because I like the iPhone X when it comes to mobile devices. And I'm an early adopter, and it tells all these things are there, right? And so that starts distinguishing enough. And then you start looking at the 200 million customers of Citigroup. And when you look at it, Citigroup says, well, you know, there's enough, all that combined, there's enough things where if we offer these 250 things to those customers as choices that they can make, that most of them are going to be happy with something in this basket, right? And a lot of them highly personalized because they're grabbing the social data to make those things. So it turns out of the 200 million, 110 million of them are happy with these 70 things and another 40 million are happy with these 102 things and so on and so forth. It adds up to a basket. And then they make the offer. That's the commonwealth of self-interest. So we're all individual, we're self-interested individuals but there's enough we can find 
for business to actually provide a basket of goods, services, and there's more than that, of consumable experiences and tools so that the customer feels valued, right? And once they feel valued, you got it and you'll keep it, right? But that, so that's the idea of the Commonwealth Development. The best example of it in the world is actually the PC and video gaming industry. In fact, in, in the book, uh, to show what the Commonwealth self-interest is, I have a 13 or 14, I, I don't know what it translates into published pages, but in Word, it's 13 or 14 page case study on that industry. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's remarkable. I mean, I don't know if we have time to really get into it. You'll never get the question two if we get that far. But, uh, <laughs> but it's, it, it is fascinating on how advanced that this is. In 2005, I did a speech at um, the Gartner conference. It was the power breakfast at 7 in the morning. And it was on the prototype of new business models. That's what they asked me to speak on. And the prototype was the PC and video gaming industry. This is no longer a prototype. This is a paradigm, right? And, and, and if anyone's interested who's listening or you guys want to hear about it later, happy to talk about it. It's an amazing story. And all I will tell you is, the reason I looked into it as much as I am is I am a rabid gamer. All right, so uh, I uh, I dug in and you take a look. Just the gaming machine behind you. That thing's pretty wild. So I can't I can't see what you see actually, but I'm behind me. It's actually over here. Yeah. Um, right. So, uh, but the, the reality of it is this: just take a look at the overall model, it's got its flaws, but the overall model of two things, and I'll tell you what they are, and then you can go look into it yourself. One is the the very conscious approach that gaming companies have taken to releasing code and tools so that people can literally mod the games, modify the games, yep. number one. And number two is look at Valve's Steam platform, right, which is where the games are sold. They have 125 million people on this platform. Right, who are buying games? The 15, I think there's been something like uh, at any given time, there's like uh, 20 or 30 million people active on it at any given time, 24 7. Right, take a look at it. It's, it's Steam, it's called. All right, look at those th things and you'll see what I'm talking about. Paul, is it, is it, it must be harder for in the B2B space to achieve that commonwealth of self interest. Is that a fair statement? And if it's not, can you give us examples of companies in the B2B space that have done as well or close to doing as well as the gaming industry? Well, no, in the B2C or B2B space, no one has done as well as the gaming industry. So okay. that's okay. why it's really a paradigm than more than anything else. It's different in the B2B space, but it's not totally different. I mean, look, ultimately, here's the thing. No matter how you cut this, no matter how big you're looking at, no matter how you categorize something, you're dealing with human self-interest. Sure. Right, and that means that even in the B2B space, you're dealing with how a human being feels about making a buying decision and why they feel that way. So, for example, if you take a look at one of the sort of up-and-coming technology tools that have, been, that have been around just a few years but are becoming more and more prevalent, we're starting to see tools which are based around the idea of well, there's two approaches. One is on the brand side, influencer marketing, but there's also tools that are sussing out relationships inside sure. businesses. Sure. Uh, and they're looking at what? They're looking at who influences sales. Right? Yeah. That's what sussing out. Now, what's interesting about that? You go back in history, and I used to do all of that stuff. I was doing government contracting stuff in my day. And I used to work with, uh, this is to show you how old I am. I used to work with uh, Anderson Consulting. Right, they were, they were partners, which is of course now Accenture and yeah. Price Waterhouse and Cooper's and Library. Right, so they were I, they were our partners <laughs> in deals around PeopleSoft back in the day. And the interesting thing about it was their approach was always the same. On the one hand, they would go directly for the decision makers. But here's the interesting thing: even then, um, how did they approach that? Right, they wind and dine people. They went out and made them feel good about having a relationship with them. And note what I said. They didn't just say, "Here is our proposal. Here's the validity of our proposal. Here's the hard numbers. Here's the dollars." They said, "They said you like us, right? Right." And so, if, if two proposals came down to the exact same thing, 
who wins? The one they like more. And that's pretty much what happened every single time. Now, what they're looking at, and this is where it shifted in the B2B side, um, they're sussing out not the decision makers, but the people who influence the decision makers. Why? Because I go to the decision maker and I say, decision maker, you need to buy this. And he's going, yeah, of course you, I need to buy it. You're saying it because you're selling it. But if their best friend at the company says, hey, man, you really need to take a look at this. Like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll do that. Right? And that's, that's how it's beginning to work. So what do you see there? There's a chain of people who are engaged in a, it's kind of a matrix, really, who if you engage them appropriately, which really means appeal to their self-interest, right? Then you win, right? And the reason you win is because it appeals to their self-interest. Everything, look, the simplest way to view this, and this is the coolest and most human part of this whole thing, which is um, when it boils down to it, um, all of us want outcomes from things, right? We, we're not looking at the things, we want what it does. Right, and we can go into the formal, you know, uh, uh, philosophical side of it, or the or the strategic side with, you know, service design and service dominant logic, and you know, value and jobs and all of that stuff. But ultimately, it boils down to this: if it helps me, I like it. Right, and and well, I had a discussion about uh, this has got to be four years ago, maybe, with um, a C-level exec at a very big company, and. He wasn't a tech buyer, but he knew everything about technology. And he was like amazing. <laughs> and uh, I said to him, I was sort of curious, and we were at some party, and he was a little bit blitzed, I think. So, uh, you know, I said to him, let me ask you a question. If you're, you're making a tech decision, and there are two choices on the table, one of them is 100% valuable to your company. Just the value is off the charts, incredible. Doesn't do much for you, because it's not what your world is, but really valuable to the company. And the other one is maybe 80%, not quite as valuable to the company, but it does something for you. Which do you choose? And he didn't even like pretend. He just said the second one, right? He didn't, it's not like he thought about it, he just said it. I said, why? He goes, because it helps me, like that. You hear that little pitch, same up pitch in his voice too. It helps me, right? He really did that, right? But that's, you know what? Can't fault him for that. That's what this whole thing's about. If you're not helping him get promoted or keeping him from getting, getting fired. fired. Exactly. No, okay, so here's a great example. So Lattice Engines, who um, you guys know, are, which is, for those of you who don't, they do sales and marketing optimization is what they like to call it. It's a lot of it's market intelligence, it's action, things like that. But they did a brilliant piece of marketing about two, three years ago, which when they were first founded and was beginning to get results. There were two things they showed. They got the customer and the customer references, customer reference area A was pretty standard. We got this kind of upsell due to that, right? Customer B was I got promoted due to Lattice Engines, yep. right? That was yep, part yep, of yep, yep. That was brilliant. It's brilliant. That was one of the best pieces of marketing I ever saw in my life. Because was that Brian Carden? Was that Brian Carden? Maybe I don't know. But he was still there. Yeah, he's still there. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that's pretty wild. Yeah, that, no, these guys, that, if you really put that in your head and think about it for one second, you realize that's totally brilliant. And nobody else ever does that. They all try to show the business value, but never the personal value. But there's a huge personal value in decision, and it has to be there in the decision. All right, well, well, hey, we're trying something new this week. You're going to be our first guinea pig. What was the most <laughs> memorable tweet you saw this week? <laughs> the one that, the, the, the roughly, it's not one, it's probably, 2,000 of them, the 2,000 you guys put out advertising the show. <laughs> right. I just get, I, you, I'll put it this way, and uh, Steve Gilmore would appreciate this. Uh, I was driven crazy by the amount of notifications, thanks to you guys. <laughs> I was getting them on my car. I was getting, I have IF, uh, IFTTT set up so that my, if my car would actually get notifications that I would get. And I was getting notifications in my car about this show over and over. It was broke me off the road. <laughs> wait, till, uh, wait, till, wait till the Huffington Post, your car's going to be buzzing. <laughs> it was something, man. That was literally the most memorable. Are you sure, are you sure it wasn't your trip, at, your trip at alerts? <laughs> that too. But no, I've never seen so much advertising of one show in my life. <laughs> I mean, I'm getting them because of my at thing, but 
but you're all over. You guys, I got to give it to you, man. You guys flood the airwaves. Well, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna have to thank our our producer who is uh, out on maternity leave, Aubrey, for setting up a lot of those, and our and our current producer, Courtney. So. So cool, man. Hey, this is it. This is a wrap, man. So we can't wait to see your book. When, when is the guest when it's coming out? Uh, do well, they give you a date? Yeah. Uh, so this manuscript went in September 6th. The date for delivery, according to Harvard Business Press, is September 2018, one year from now. Paul uh, Greenberg, founder and managing principal of the 56 Group. He's going to have to wait a year to get to his book. You can follow him at P. Greenby uh, if you need anything. So, hey, Paul, thanks a lot. And we're going to see you at Constellations Connected Enterprise with the Digital Sports Panel. So, happy to see you there, October 25th. Ray, to 27th. Ray I'm, propo I'm proposing right now we're going to do an hour reading with Paul uh, on the show. We just want Paul reading chapters and you and I asking questions. So, because honestly, we could listen to Paul. He is masterful at simplifying complex principles. Uh, and he's, he's, just, he's just a genius. So really, really appreciate having him uh, in a cleanup hitter spot for us. Next right. week is also going to be amazing. Uh, you know, da, this da, is da, da. Episode 80. Episode 80, we have uh, Chuck Jarapathy, founder and CEO of Tax, will be here. Will Hay, CEO of LucidWorks, will be here. And one of our uh, favorite reporters and technologists, Ron Miller of TechCrunch, will give us a you know, maybe recap of what happened at Tech Disrupt and, uh, and we'll chat with him with the latest activities in the software enterprise space. So as you know, this is where people come on Fridays to share their life lessons, leadership and business and innovation. And we're grateful for you uh, tuning in. Uh, see you next Friday. Thanks yeah, everyone. Next Friday.